G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. It's like the vision is this is the lamb, yeah, but he's a sheep with an attitude, and it's a bad idea to mess with this lamb. Hello, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll hear part two of The Lamb and the Scroll. Pastor Jeff brings us encouragement and insight from Revelation chapter 5 about how giving up or losing some earthly pursuits for Christ is worth it in light of the promises we have in heaven. Jesus is exclusive. He says there's only one way to go to the Father and it's through the Son. And by the way, He may be exclusive, but He's the most inclusive exclusivist you'll ever meet. This is Today with Jeff Vines and the continuation of The Lamb and the Scroll. Notice what happens. John is looking at the throne. He sees God. And again, those colors emanating from the throne to represent how close God holds his own people to his heart. And then as John is looking, it's like it shifts and changes, and suddenly he sees the Lamb. Now, why does he do it like that? So that John will know that the Lamb, that God and Christ are both deity, are one and the same. He has power and he has the universe because he made the universe even though the universe was given to him. This is one of the most powerful scriptures in Revelation for the deity of Christ. And it says this lamb appearing as if it looked it were slain. He emerges from the throne. It's interchangeable, God and Christ. And this lamb has seven horns. The horns represent authority. Seven represents perfect. So he has perfect and all authority. Only God has that. But Jesus has that authority. He has seven eyes. That means he has seven eyes. That's a funny looking lamb. But it's not seven eyes. It's the idea of perfect vision. He sees everything. There's omniscience. Only the ancient of days is described like that. Wait a minute. Jesus is the ancient of days. And he's perfect in knowledge, power, and wisdom. There are seven spirits. The Holy Spirit is a perfect, complete spirit. There is complete unity and diversity and community within the Trinity. And then in verse 7 it says, He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is beautiful. The only people that can walk into the presence of the king unannounced are the prince and his family. If you go into the presence of the king in the Old Testament unannounced, you'll be killed. But Jesus walks right up because he's the prince. And he takes the scroll. And as soon as he does, there is a new song in heaven. And they start saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. In other words, Christ, since you own all things, you are worthy to open and tell us how God is going to use planet earth to achieve his purposes from the time Jesus established his kingdom till the time he returns with a special emphasis and intensity near the end. You are the one. Because you were slain, you're worthy because you did what God asked all of us to do. You gave up your life for a purpose bigger than yourself. You obeyed God even though it cost you your life. And with your blood, you purchased God. For God. With your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You with me? 
this bothers some people because, wow, look, by your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people and nation. People complain sometimes. Now stay with me. This is important. I'm going to move on. People complain again because they say, well, you Christians are exclusive. First of all, we're not exclusive. We invite and receive everyone in. But Jesus is exclusive. He says there's only one way to go to the Father, and it's through the Son. And the reason he says that is because he's the only one that atoned for your sins. He's the only one that put you in a right relationship with God the Father. And by the way, he may be exclusive, but he's the most inclusive exclusivist you'll ever meet. Because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Islam, you know that you're told there is no miracle. Muhammad did no miracles. Now again, this is, I'm not slamming Islam. I'm simply saying that this is the difference between the two. You understand? That's what we call healthy debate. Islam says that Muhammad did no miracles. And yet it says also that Muhammad and Jesus are equal. They say the only miracle is the Quran, the book. And the only way you can understand the miraculous nature of the Quran is to be fluent in advanced Arabic. How convenient. Jesus says, no matter what education you have, poor, middle class, upper class, no matter where you're from, all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord are able to understand the gospel and receive it. In a debate with a Muslim once in New Zealand, I asked the question, now follow me here, is Jesus a prophet? Islam will say Jesus is a prophet. Can a prophet lie? No, a prophet cannot lie. Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, the reason I am the way to God is because I paid for your sin and nobody else did that for you. And Jesus is so inclusive that even bad people get in. Don't you love that? Bad people get in. Because it's not about how good or bad you are on the scale from zero to 100. It's being saved by grace through faith and who you put your trust in. Now at this point, stay with me, something beautiful happens. So wake up if you're asleep. You don't want to miss this part. Here's what happens. It's like suddenly John in the vision shifts from here's who opens the scroll. And next week we're going to talk about what's in that scroll. Who opens it to John. Here's what the people of God are like. And he sees four things. The first thing, the people of God are people who will reign upon the earth. Again, if you come to the service and you say, oh boy, here we go again. I knew you Christians were wacky. You're going to reign on the earth. You're going to take over the earth and be the new kings and your priests and all that. You guys are crazy, but you're missing the point. In Revelation 21, we'll get there sooner or later, probably later. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth have passed away. Now this is a key verse because there are two Greek words translated new, neos and kainos. One word means to be new in the sense of brand spanking new, new in time, brand new. But the other word means new in refurbished or renovated new. You know, when you take an old piece of furniture and you redo it, you would say, hey, look, I've renewed this piece of furniture. I've restored it to its original design. So in the Bible, when it talks about a new heaven and new earth, it's not talking about brand new. It's talking about what you're on now is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. In the same way that you see signs of holiness in your life because of the spirit, you see signs of wonder and God's creative capacity, even in the created scenario in which you live, the mountains, the ocean. And one day the Bible says, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he is seated on the throne. I am going to make everything new. Folks, do you realize what he's saying? Do you know what this means? It's like one day, 
when the Lord returns, we're all going to be caught up and we'll talk about what that means in the word rapture and everything, but we're going to be caught up and guess what happens? God puts a big ribbon over planet earth and it says closed for renovations. Be back after lunch. And then when we're given our new bodies, we're given down and restored to the new earth. Look, this makes more logical sense than you could ever think. God restores creation to what it was originally supposed to be before sin tainted it. And you and I now live in trying to subdue planet earth for our purposes. Now to go on to make, to make sure you know I'm not gloomy. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 44, the apostle Paul is just trying to describe our new body, what it's going to be like. And he says, it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. Now notice the contrast. It is not between a physical body and some puff of smoke or angelic being that has wings and flies around for all eternity. He says, in the new heaven, it is sown. That is, it goes down into the grave like a seed would. That's the analogy in 1 Corinthians 15. It goes down in the ground, a natural body, this body that we have now. But it will be given, it will be restored, it will be raised, a spiritual body. The contrast is not between flesh and spirit, but between two types of bodies. You with me? One is called a physical body. The other is called a spiritual body. They're both bodies. They're just different from each other. The Greek helps us here. The natural body is sukikos, which means a body that is subject to physics. We get our English word physics from sukikos, the natural, the realm of nature, limited to the natural world. But he says, now we have the natural, the sukikos, the natural body subject to physics, but one day we'll have the spiritual body, the pneumatikos, that that is suited to living beyond the natural, not subject to physics. Are your eyes starting to be open? To make sure you understand, in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, he summarizes it by saying, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Who's the earthly man? Adam. DNA came right from him. We're, we're tainted, man. We're sinners. We're tainted. We got issues. But we'll be given the body of the new man, the man from heaven, which is... Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice the things Jesus was able to do after he rose from the dead? In Luke chapter 24, two men are walking to the road to Emmaus and suddenly Jesus just appears out of nowhere. Now you see him, now you don't. Or now you don't and now you do. It seems like Jesus was able to will where he wanted to be and he could travel through time and space at his leisure. In John chapter 20, the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. The disciples are hiding out and suddenly the Bible tells us Jesus just, boom, appears right through the walls and doors and says, peace, brothers. You know why he said peace, brothers? Because when you appear out of thin air, you need to say peace, brothers. (laughs) And then in Acts chapter one, the ascension. What happens to Jesus? He just kind of climbs up to the clouds like an elevator. He's just going on. I said, go into all the world, preaching, teaching them everything I've commanded you in the name of the Father and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I'll be with you until the end of the age. And then in John 21, oh yeah, it's my favorite. John 21, Jesus has risen from the dead and he goes to restore Peter and he makes breakfast. Yeah. Jesus eats, not because he has to, but for the sheer pleasure of it. Are you with me? Okay, my puny little mind, if I can think of these things, think about what heaven is really like. God's already demonstrated his creative capacity. The apostle Paul's trying to say there's going to be one day, this new body is not going to be subject to physics like you're used to. You're going to fly with the eagles. You're going to swim with the whales. Wait a minute, I thought the Bible says there's no ocean in heaven. I'll get to that when we get to Revelation 21. Or in 20. Or 21. 21. 
Yeah, 21. (laughs) The point is that the earth will no longer subdue us. It will work in harmony with us. We'll no longer spend our time bringing the earth into submission, but the new earth will be in submission full to us. New heavens, new earth. New bodies, renewed, renewed, renewed. A glorious body will be given conducive to a glorious earth where we, like Jesus, are no longer subject to spatial limitations. That explains what Paul means in Romans 8.21 when he says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What does he mean? Right now, the creation, like us, cries out, this is not what I was meant to be. Don't you ever feel like your body's crying that out? This is not what I was meant to be. I know it. I can feel it. And Jesus says to the apostle Paul, don't worry, you're going to get your new body one day and it's going to be conducive to the new heavens and the new earth. And creation cries out, this is not what you made me to be. And God says, I know, be patient. One day I'm going to make all things new and you're going to have a body that's conducive to the new heavens and the new earth. And somehow we won't be subject to spatial limitation. That means if I can just meander, boom, I think about going to Mars and I'm there. I don't know exactly how it works. Boom. I think about being in, I don't know, Myrtle Beach and I'm there. I don't know exactly how. I just know that if I, my puny little weak mind can come up with this based on what I read in scripture, think about how great it really is. And while the apostle Paul would say, no, I has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. But my favorite part is the fact that heaven is described as a huge banquet that I'll be able to eat all the chocolate. I'll be able to drink all the coffee. I'll be able to eat apple and blueberry and peach cobbler and just fork down the ice cream. And the beauty of it is I'll never gain one pound. Now that's heaven. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. You're listening to The Lamb and the Scroll. Let's continue now with Pastor Jeff. Something about how Jesus describes this to John is so overwhelming that in verse 12, they just break out in a course. It says that thousands upon thousands, and if you do the math, you'll equal 100 million plus, but that's not what it means. It just means everybody, and a lot of people start to shout, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Notice there are seven things. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Why seven? To show you every time the lamb is mentioned, he's just perfect in everything so that worship becomes logic on fire. Worship is simply logic on fire. You worship. And by the way, let me go back. If you find it hard to worship, it's because your heart has not been moved by logic that should have gone into your head a long time ago that, wait a minute, I have been the end of the film. I've seen the end of the game. I know how it all plays out. And one day, no matter what God asks me to endure or go through here, he's going to replace it to an infinitely greater degree. And I am going to win in the end. So because I know that, how does that change the way I live now? One of the things it does is it means when I have the opportunity for worship, man, I go before God and I say, God, you are great. I know down deep inside one day I'm going to be what I was meant to be. And I'm going to possess everything you were meant to possess. I was meant to possess through the inheritance that you've given me. We will reign on the earth. We will subdue it. It will function for us for our benefit on our behalf and we will no longer fight against it. And so you're supposed to be fired up. You can't manufacture worship. If you have a hard time manufacturing, it's because you still haven't come to the conclusion that you do win in the end or you're not either convinced of it. In Revelation 5, 13, they says, then I heard every creature on heaven, in, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, under the sea, they started singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory. 
So John learns, first of all, that the people of God will reign on the earth. Not everybody will, the people of God, those who called on his name. But he also learns that the people of God will say, Jesus is worth it. Abraham, was it worth leaving your home, everything familiar and everything you love, spending your life wandering around as a stranger, waiting on the promise of God? Was it worth it? Moses, was it worth leaving the palace and the pleasures of Egypt and the power and the prestige associated with it? Was it worth it carrying these whiny people on your back for 40 years and still stopping short of the promised land? Was it worth it? What about you, John? Was it worth spending your time in your old age when you should have been with your children and grandchildren? Instead, you're rotting in a Roman prison, chained to a hostile guard, stuck on an island, seeing these visions, writing them down to encourage the people of God. Was it worth it? What about to you? Is it worth making the financial sacrifice that you do? And instead of building your own kingdom, you're building one that is for eternity? You say, well, I'm not doing that. The people of God, the people of heaven do. Was it worth not building bigger and bigger barns, but spreading God's gifts to those who are less fortunate? You say, I don't do that. People of God do. Was it worth to go on serving and loving and giving when you felt unappreciated, misunderstood, and it feels like somebody else gets all the recognition and reward for your efforts? You say, I don't do that. People of God do. Is it worth obeying God when it costs you your job? When it costs you your boyfriend? When it cost you your girlfriend, when it cost you a career, was it worth it? Do you know what the people of God say? You bet your eternity it was. You were working for the owner and proprietor of the universe and everything is in his right hand. And now he gives it to you. And whatever you lost for his sake will be replaced to an infinitely greater degree. The people of God will say Jesus is worth it, but the people of God also gain their lives by giving them up. I'm almost finished. Stay with me now. In Revelation 5, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. In some translations, it says conquered. Why is it that Jesus was able to open the scroll? You say, well, because he's, he's the prince. It's not only that. The Bible says he did something. He conquered. He overcame. He prevailed. What does that mean? Jesus did the one thing that he requires the people who call on his name to do. He lived his life for something other than himself and was willing to lay it down for a purpose greater than himself. This is a matter of eternity, folks. This is real stuff. Is that you? I know I've told this story a few times. I'll tell you the short version. When I was a little boy playing peewee baseball, they put me in right field. And they put you in right field if you're no good. Because in peewee baseball, no balls ever get to right field. So I had a lot of time on my hands just to stand out there. And if, since I'm ADD, I have to find something to do. And so my mother told me, make sure when I'm playing the outfield, not to stare at the sun. And of course, when your mother tells you that, you're going to stare at the sun. And I would stare at the sun. And I figured out if you stare at the sun for like about 30 seconds and then you close your eyes real tight, it's beautiful. There are these little dots of different colors that bounce everywhere. I'm serious. You, now, for you younger kids, don't try this without your parents' permission. You have to be a professional to do this. And so I'd stare at the sun, then I'd close my eyes. And then these beautiful, I'm serious, purple, pink, yellow, green. They would bounce everywhere, but I got frustrated because I couldn't really see them because they're bouncing everywhere. So over time, trial and error, I learned there is a way to see them. That if you stop looking at the dots and you focus on a background, a fixed point, 
something on a larger scale that the little dots will stabilize and you can see them in your peripheral vision and they are beautiful. (laughs) Folks, that's your life. As long as you look at the dots of your life and your focus is on your next pleasurable satisfaction, your life is unstable and there's no peace nor tranquility. But if you can get to a point in your life when the focus is off you to a greater fixed point, the kingdom of God, then little dots will stabilize and you can begin to see your life as it really is through the eyes of God to be laid down for his purposes and his kingdom for the one that is to come. Where are you? If you find your life, Jesus said, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your soul. This, isn't, this is serious. What, what are you living for? And if you say you're living for the kingdom of God, if I followed you around for the next 48 hours, for the next week, would I say, man, you are living for the kingdom of God. I see you open your Bible. I see you have times of prayer. I see the way you spend your money. I see the things you talk about and what you think about. Would I know that? The people of God would. And the people of God understand that salvation belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Can I ask you a question? Do you realize that if Jesus is not the only way to the Father, then God is a masochist? Because if there's another way to provide salvation, why on earth would you send your son to die a horrible, bloody, gory death when it was not necessary? You think you solve one problem, but you create ten more. And the reality is no matter how many ways God gives you to him, you would always want one more. But God has deemed that the sacrifice of his son on the cross, the lamb, is worthy because he paid for your sin. And one day, this lion is going to, you're going to hear him roar. And from the line of David, with all kingdom and a power and authority, something interesting happens. Now, here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes. Now, close your eyes, every head bowed. I want you to think of this vision, and I'm going to do it too. This is fun. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of this universe. So the day is coming. Just imagine in your mind. Try to see the vision in your mind's eye. See just billions of people knelt down. For just goes on forever and ever. And all the angelic forces and all the demonic forces that everyone at one moment in time, every entity, every being, every knee bows on the earth, in the heavens and under the earth and they proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Now at that time, there are going to be two groups of people and the Bible says the smaller group of people, the narrow way, the smaller group of people are those who said, you know what? He's Lord of my life now and I lay my crown at his feet and whatever he calls me to do, I do. Wherever he calls me to go, I go. I belong to him. There will be a small group of people who will say, you've been the Lord of my life all my life. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then there will be billions and billions and billions and billions upon billions of people who are just doing it now out of fear, but they do it gnashing their teeth. They know that he is the Lord of the universe now. He has made it clear. They know. They're not doubting anymore. They're not making excuses, but they don't like it. Which one are you?
Now, if you're in the room, every head bowed, every eyes closed. If you're in the room and you'd like to step across the great divide and say, man, I want to be the one who makes him the Lord of my life now so that I will reign on the earth, the new heavens, the new earth, a new body conducive to a new heaven and a new earth. I want, to, I want that. Then I want right now is for everyone to repeat this prayer after me. And I'm asking everyone to say it because those of you who said it before, if there's somebody that's saying it for the first time, they won't be so embarrassed. They'll be able to say it because everybody's saying it. But you'll say it for the first time if you're saying it for the first time and repeat this prayer after me. I know I'm a sinner. I ask your forgiveness. I believe that salvation comes through Christ. And Christ alone. Because only he atoned for my sin. I believe he holds the keys to life and death. And just as he was raised to new life. So shall I be. I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Of this universe. And of my life. And I receive him as Lord and Savior. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And that brings us to the end of The Lamb and the Scroll. You can hear this message again in full by heading to the Vision website. That's vision.org.au and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.